Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. We begin to run into some of the prophets now. Not just Elijah and Elisha, but prophets who have their own books. All right? And so we're about to, to learn about some of them. Jeroboam II is the fourth of the Jehu dynasty. So remember I said that God has said Jehu would have four, four in his dynasty. It's going to end with Jeroboam II. Jeroboam gets a fairly long rule. And I don't know if you can tell, but now that I understand how to read this chart, <laughs> one of the things that you'll notice is this right here is a, is a weird color. And the reason for that is because it's actually Jehoahash's reign and Jeroboam's reign overlapping. And what happens is there's about an 11-year period where Jeroboam co-reigns with his father. All right? And, um, and so that's what that's showing you there. At least that's the most, that's the easiest way to understand the chronology as it's laid out for us, and not, un, not completely implausible, right? Because it is a dynasty, there's no reason they couldn't reign together. They wouldn't have been exactly fighting each other. And in some ways, it's a really smart way to make sure that your son uh, carries on your legacy and doesn't kill you because he's already in the throne, right? <laughs> so that's what's going on there. Um, so we have Jeroboam the second there. We have Azariah, who is also Uzziah, and I warned you about that. Scripture will alternately call him Azariah and Uzziah, but it's actually the exact same person, all right? This is the northern <coughs> kingdom, this is Israel, this is the southern kingdom, this is Judah. Um, as far as the Assyrian Empire, there's an interesting thing that happens during the reign of Jeroboam II, and that's that Jeroboam ends up taking back a lot of territory, that the Syrians and the Assyrians, and remember those are two different people who were giving them trouble, had taken. Uh, Jeroboam II starts taking some of them back. Kings tells us, I think we read it today, that this is partly because, um, not because Jeroboam did anything right, but because God is just preserving Israel, right? We're told. But the other thing that we know historically, or the not, not but, and, because this is the way God was doing it apparently, the other thing that we know historically is that Shalmaneser II, which is the guy who was who was causing trouble for the Syrians and for some of the others and, and for the Transjordan empires. Shalmaneser II dies. Um, and, and his... Wait, is it that he dies? Oh no, he doesn't die. He just gets, he gets old. And so he ends up, for whatever reason, he ends up weakening. His kingdom weakens and he starts getting pushed back. So Shalmaneser is the guy who required tribute from Jehu and from the Judah king both at one point. Well, that stops happening, and in fact, the Assyrians get pushed back, and Jeroboam pushes them back, and it's not until Tilgath Pilzer II, who is the next person in line, in about 744, it's not until then that the Assyrian Empire begins to really kind of roar back. And when they do roar back, they roar back. They take over Mesopotamia, they take over Babylon, which has not become a, a world empire yet, but will eventually. <laughs> but they take over all these areas, and then they start moving in on Israel. But that is still... That's about 744, so we've got about 30 years, basically the reign of Jeroboam, before anything like that's going to happen. All right? So this is a moment of rest from the Assyrian pressure. It's also a moment of rest from the Syrian pressure because Assyria took care of them to a degree before they got weaker. All right? So Syria's not picking on us so much. Assyria's kind of backed off. Jeroboam has a good reign. Looks... Like a reasonable moment. Ahaziah has a good reign too, which we'll learn more about as we go. All right? <clears throat> so that's what's going on um, in the background. And let's read 2 Kings 15, verses 1 through 5. So this is about 768 B.C. 
In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, Uzziah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. So that's a, that's a pretty good long reign, right? There's some stability in that. His mother's name was Jecoilia. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The Lord, Lord afflicted the king with leprosy until the day he died, and he lived in a separate place, separate house. Jotham, the king's son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. We're going to learn a little bit. Leprosy? Uh, Uzziah. We're going to learn a little bit more about that in Chronicles. Okay? Kings just tells us. Uzziah is going to tell us why and how that happened. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 1 through 21. Whoops. Then I... Oh, sorry. Got to get back there. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Chikoiliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines, and he broke down the walls of Gath, Jabneth, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbal and against the Meunites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. So even while Jeroboam is having some success against the Assyrians, it's Uzziah who's really getting kind of a world name. And that's why his reign is so long, and he actually pushes back. He, becomes, he doesn't push back as far as Egypt, but his fame is known as far as Egypt. Do we know how old he was when he contracted the leprosy well, issues? Keep reading. Okay. Uzziah built, I don't know if it'll give us the exact age, but we'll get an idea. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. Remember that the previous king of Israel and the previous king of Judah got in a fight, and they destroyed some of the wall. So Uzziah rebuilt it, right? He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards and hills and in the fertile lands for he loved the soil. Uh, this is telling us, I think, that Uzziah is a farmer at heart, right? He's a king, but he's a farmer. Just like Dave was a king, Dave, Dave and I. Just like David was a king and a shepherd, right? You know, you are still what you are. So he loves the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers, as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. I don't know if he's inventing slots for the arrows or catapults or something, but he's inventing something that hasn't been done in his time, in his area of the world at least before, to enable people to shoot from the, uh, from the corners of the, which is why he built the corners, right? He didn't just build these towers for no reason. He built them with this ability to protect Jerusalem. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. 
they confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. You don't have to think too hard or too far, but if you go back to when they were in the wilderness and they first started having the tabernacle, and there was all sorts of trouble if someone who wasn't a priest tried to do the priestly duties. And they were usually swallowed up by the earth, right? So this is bad. That there's a reason, too. We see throughout Scripture that God is very intentional about keeping the, the priest and the king separate offices. He doesn't want the priest to have the power that the king has, and he doesn't want the king to have the power that the priest has. So there's something, some wisdom there that even our founding fathers put in place, I think, right? Now, it gets misused in all sorts of ways. I'm not here to have a political discussion about whether separation of church and state is good the way it's applied. But the idea, if you look at something like the Vatican or you look at the Middle Ages, you look at times when the church has been in political power or you look at Islam states where they are theocracies, you see that there are problems and that the temptations are very large. The, the popes today are, seem to be genuinely honest and non-corrupt people. But when the popes were also the political power of the world, they were not. They were corrupt people. The Pharisees in the New Testament, as they have political power as well as their religious power, they tend to be corrupt people. The chief priests are tended to be corrupt people. God knew that. And so he tends to keep them separate, which is one of the reasons I think he doesn't want the king doing priestly duties. One of the examples you may remember is Saul. That Saul is on a mountain and God says, wait for the priest to arrive to make the sacrifice for me. And Saul waits and he waits and he waits and nobody shows up, so he does it. And of course, as soon as he starts doing it, the priest shows up and says, why didn't you wait? And Saul says, what can be wrong? I was doing the right thing. And the priest says, no, you did the wrong thing. And because of that, according to the priest, at that moment, he says, because of that, you're going to lose your kingdom. You may not remember that, but that was the first time that God said, this is why you will not continue as king. So it's a big deal. Now, it's interesting to me that it specifically mentions that Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests. That tells you that now that he's become powerful and he's not quite pursuing God, even though he's in the temple, they're afraid he will kill them. Right? It's not like Azariah felt comfortable going up and saying, hey, just I realize you probably didn't know. This is a bad thing. Now, he knew that if he challenged the king, he might die. He brings 80 other priests, and he has to find courageous priests, right? I mean, this, it really tells you something about the state of things right now. So they confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. So that is his reply. He's about to be really angry at them. While he was raging at the priests in their presence, you know, who are you to tell me what I can do and what I can't do? I'm God's favored chosen person. I'm blessed. Who are you? Just raving and raving at them. While he's raging at the priests in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave. Because Actually, I believe I would be ranting and ranting. What did I say? Raving and raving. Well, either way. No, they're, they're opposites. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. No, they're not. <laughs> we can have this discussion later. <laughs> he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and burnt, and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. So even though he's still technically king, he's not allowed in the palace. He's not allowed anywhere. He's a leper. 
And it's because he, he went into the temple inappropriately. So it's as if God said, well, here's a way to make sure you never enter the temple. Again. So he wasn't a kid. He was older. Oh, yeah, he was older. This is after he became powerful, okay, so. presumably very powerful, presumably about the same time his fame spread to Egypt, somewhere in that area. So it's, a long, it's, it's well into his career, I would guess. All right. And that leads us to the story of Jonah. Did I miss anything? Were you going to say something, though? I always see you raise your hand when you don't. You do that. I'm in my lap crocheting a blanket. <laughs> yes, Meredith? So, <clears throat> Jeroboam You just crochet vigorously. Anyway, go ahead. So the first Jeroboam was with those guys on top, right? Oh, the first Jeroboam was the very first king of Israel after um, Solomon. Oh, so he was kind of the over both areas then. Was he no, a, he was the first king when Israel and Judah split. Okay. He was the first king of Israel. Rehoboam or Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the king of Judah at that time. Was he as darkly considered by yes. those guys? Jeroboam. The upper guys as they were by the lower guys. Did, well, what, I don't know. Jeroboam becomes the standard, the one of which they say whenever a king is Which bad. is where I'm leaving that. Yeah. Why would anybody name their kid Jeroboam again? Well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Especially Jehu, who apparently had all this zeal for, for you know, restoration. Now, it's not his son. It's his, what is that, grand, great, great-grandson. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Still, Jeroboam was a great king, I suppose. Right? I mean, it would be more akin to naming him... It wouldn't be Hitler. They wouldn't think of him like that. Well, so it would be more... Kind of, I'm trying Hitler. to think who's like somebody bad that we might actually... Judas. We still name our kids Henry, right? He Henry. Okay, sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. All right, that brings us to Jonah. Jonah's story takes place during the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay? This is relevant because I talked about Assyria is weakened. But what we know about Assyria... And, and, and Jonah being a prophet may even know more than we know or that other people of his time know, right? He may know that the Assyrians are going to wreak havoc upon Israel to come with, to come. What we know about the Assyrians, even at this weekend moment, is that they're brutal. They're some of the most brutal dictators ever in the history of the world. In fact, Tilgath Pilzer could arguably be, arguably be the most brutal dictator the world's ever seen. I would put him in the class with Mao and Hitler and people like that. Okay, terrible, terrible, brutal, brutal dictator. One of the reasons he was so effective is because he had zero moral conscience and scruples, apparently. <laughs> and so he just did whatever he needed to do to win. And um, it didn't bother him. Um, now, it's not quite that bad yet because Tilgath, Tilgath Pilzer isn't leading yet, but Assyria still, it's just that culture. When they conquer someone, they conquer them, they humiliate them, they don't just destroy them, they humiliate them. They try to just, whatever they can, to make them as miserable as possible. They don't think about mercy. They don't think about grace. They're not going to come in and make it, you know, if you surrender to them, they're not going to make it any easier for you. They're just going to continue to make your life as terrible as they can possibly make it because that seems to be their goal. <laughs> okay. This is an important story of Jonah because the city of Nineveh, if you know the story of Jonah, is the capital of Assyria. Okay. So when we get into the story, you will understand some of Jonah's reaction. It's not an implausible reaction. It's not some, it's easy to look at Jonah. He's, he's the picture of unfaithfulness, right? We know the story. He's the guy who didn't obey God. But I want you to think about the fact that, that at the way he did not obey God, it is a way that many of us would probably respond, given the same task in front of us. 
it's, it's understandable, if still not okay. All right. Um, furthermore, I have a suspicion. So let me say this before I get to my suspicion. Jonah is unique among the prophetic books in that it isn't prophecy. <laughs> it's not a list of prophecies. And yet, the Hebrews regard this a prophetic book. They do not regard it a history. Okay? Now, this is a story about an event in Jonah's life. But the Hebrews have always put this among the prophets, and they call him a prophet. He is a prophet. We'll actually see. He comes up later. Uh, we have one prophecy from him in 2 Kings later. He pops up at one moment, just so we know he's still alive. But, but the thing is, for some reason, even though this is just a story about an event in his life, the Hebrews regard this as a prophetic book, and I think there's a, re there's a reason for this. It's, so it's unique among the prophetic books in that way because it's a story about Jonah, and it's not a book about prophecies. The other thing that's weird about the book of Jonah is the way it ends. It ends without resolution. You'll see that today because we'll get there today. <laughs> it ends with God literally asking Jonah a question. And that's where it ends. It's like you're watching a TV show and someone asks someone a question and the answer is really important and the TV show ends right there. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it seems like the Israelites kind of regard this prophecy because they said like Absolutely, and that's what I said. They regard this as a prophetic book. They regard him as one of the prophets. They don't regard this as a history or a wisdom book. But here's why I think they do. They believed, and I think they're right, although this is unprovable, that Jonah is the author of the book of Jonah. Now, if he's the author of the book of Jonah, we have to give him credit for being very humble when it comes right down to it because he does not make himself look good in this book. That's true. I mean, seriously, he writes it as it is. <laughs> but if it's a book written by Jonah, then it is, a, it is a prophecy. Not a prophecy in predicting the future, but a prophecy and a lesson from God. And the way he's telling this lesson is by saying, let me tell you something that happened to me. And the reason he ends with a question and doesn't tell you what his answer was. It's as if he's doing a sermon. And he comes to the end and he says, and that's when God asked me this question. And you're all like, yes. And then, the, the, then Jonah says to you all, how would you answer it? And then he gets off the stage. <laughs> so is there any discussion among the scholars that it actually did end this way with the question at it? Or we just don't have any more? Is there any discussion? Sure. I, I am sure that there is discussion. There's always discussion. And I'm sure that there are some people who say maybe it ends where it does just because we're missing material. Right. That's certainly possible. I believe the scripture is organized by God just as much as I believe it's inspired by God. And so even if there is more material, I think God left it out on purpose. Um, and so if, but even if he did, but I also think it's very reasonable to argue that Jonah wrote it that way. That he left it at that question for two reasons. One is, he didn't want the book to become about him ultimately. And if the book goes on to talk about his repentance, which, I, which if he wrote the story, he clearly underwent, right. right? If it goes on to be about his repentance, then that's what the book becomes about. Okay. It becomes about Jonah and his repentance. And I don't think he wants the book, if I'm correct that he wrote it, I don't think he wants the book to be about that. I think he wants the book to be about the things he learned about God. So he wants to leave it with the question that God asks, hoping that you will learn the same answer. Now, 
Everything I just said about the lessons of the story are true, even if Jonah didn't write it. So you don't have to accept that part of my speculation. It just makes more sense to me why it would be regarded as a prophecy, as a story which is not just a history, but has a very distinct personal lesson from God. Two lessons from God, really, that Jonah's telling us. Yes? Uh, no, this time. Okay. <coughs> um, I'll just go ahead and tell you what the two points he's going to make are, and then we'll read through the story. And I'll, I'll, I'll point out some things as we go. But it's a great story, and it is worth just kind of reading. I, I will comment, but a lot of it is just there. The two points he's going to make are twofold. One is about God's sovereignty. He's going to make about a point about the fact that God does what God does. And no matter how far you try to run from him, you're not going to get away. Okay? He's going to do what he's going to do what he's going to do. One thing I want you to watch for, because this will be fascinating as you read the story, because, again, I think whoever the author is does this on purpose. What's fascinating about this book is that absolutely every creature, plant life, body of water, pagan, an individual in this story who is not Jonah obeys God all the time. <laughs> and only Jonah in this story has the, the chutzpah. There's some Hebrew for you. That's actually Yiddish, That's not the Yiddish. same. I know. <laughs> but only, only, only Jonah has the whatever, really the arrogance, to, to fight against that. And even he doesn't win. But everybody else just obeys. It's like everybody else is smart enough. They figured it out. Like, even the pagans. I love it when the pagans. It's great. When we watch the pagans, two groups of pagans that obey God, and when Jonah didn't. And Jonah's like, <sighs> <laughs> okay, we'll get there. Um, so number one is the sovereignty of God. He's going to do what he's going to do. But the second part of this the lesson is very closely tied to that. And that's that God is not only sovereign, but God is a God who chooses to show mercy two people. He doesn't have to. He's sovereign. He can do anything he wants. He could wipe everybody out. He could, get, he could just do anything he wants. And once you understand that, then the second part of the lesson Jonah wants you to understand is that God is a God who chooses to show mercy, not because you are impressive, not because you did anything that made him go, you're so cute. How can I stay mad at you? <laughs> right? That doesn't happen in the Bible. That happens in Hallmark movies. Um, it isn't that. It isn't because some of us did a better job of persuading God we were worth it. It isn't because there's a seed of lovability in some of us and God pulls that best out of us. It isn't because God says it was in you all the time. Dorothy, click your heels and go home. No, it's because it has nothing to do with us. It's because God chooses to. <laughs> it's because God chooses to show mercy, and in His sovereignty, that's who He is. And these are the two points that come out in the story, and one of these two points bugs Jonah throughout the story. Actually, both of them bug Jonah, but one of them more than the other. And the sovereignty isn't the one that bugs him the most. <laughs> and that's what we're going to see. Well, from what I recall, he's kind of bugged throughout this entire. Yeah. Oh, story. he's grumpy throughout this story. He is grumpy throughout this story, which, as I say, if he did write this. Give him credit for at least uh, telling it like it was. Right. Right? Okay. So here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. God acknowledges the wickedness of Nineveh. Right? He tells Jonah, go preach against it. 
right? What he's saying at this point is go tell them they're in trouble. They're going to die. They have a problem, right? And, the, and this, the book starts right off. God gives this command. It doesn't tell us here about the motivation of Jonah. We get that later. Doesn't tell us here about the motivation of Jonah, but immediately, right away in this book, Jonah's response to this command from God is to run. He'll tell us later why. Uh, a couple things. Let's see, I had some notes here about Nineveh. Let's see. What did I say? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Archaeologists, by the way, this is one of the archaeological verified places in Scripture. Uh, Nineveh is, was big enough and powerful enough, it left ruins. Okay, we uncovered an entire temple of Ishtar, right? Uh, and Ishtar is not just a bad movie. Uh, in the 80s, it's apparently a temple of a goddess. We've uncovered a lot of public buildings. In fact, they found more than 25,000 inscripted tablets. Some of the largest collection of, like a library, that they'd ever had um, in the palace. And one of these tablets, in fact, has the Mesopotamian flood legend. I, I don't know if you remember, I've said this before, but every culture that we know of that has a, any kind of written uh, culture has a flood legend. And this is where we get the Mesopotamian flood legend from, which tells a story of God who got mad at the world and said he was going to flood the world and destroy it and picked one person who was going to save the whole world from that flood. This is the story. This is the story that every culture has. Um, and weirdly enough, some people say that proves that it can't be a true story. So It's the opposite. If every culture has it, then it probably actually happened, and that's why every culture knows it, right? <laughs> Anyway, so can yes. we go on a bit of a rabbit trail here? Well, we'll see if I let you, because okay. I'm going to get through Jonah. So I'm also reading uh, a history on uh, Buffalo Bill Cody right now. <laughs> Which is right around the same time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And he's, he's part of the flood. He's one of the flood legends, right? Yeah. He built, uh, <laughs> so sure. he built a stagecoach. He ran go across ahead. these Indians, and these Indians showed him these enormously large bones. Okay. And they looked like human bones, but they were huge. So the Indians are telling Bill Cody that this, their story of these giants that were on earth a long time ago and how arrogant they were, blah, 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 blah. And a flood came and God was mad and he wept, or the great spirit came and wiped them all out with a flood. So it said, kind of goes along with the story of the fact that they, their culture, this is a true story too, that their culture said that there was a flood and it wiped them all out. It does. It's actually one of the weird things, which would be weird if it hadn't actually happened. That, that we just know as we know more about cultures. Every culture which has anything to say about their past. Some cultures don't, don't, have, don't, don't talk about their past at all. But any culture which has any sort of legends about their past has a flood story. That is one of the, the mainstays that every single legend has. Um, the other one is a creation story. No, that makes sense. We're here. You've got to come up with some explanation of why we're here. <laughs> right? Yeah, we haven't kind of gotten, seen that yet in his motivation, but you're right. And in fact, again, the lesson that Jonah wants us to learn is a lesson that all the Israelites struggled with throughout Scripture. But I actually think it's a lesson we struggle with too. So let's, let's press on. So that's what it says. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. All right. Um, Tarshish, we don't know where Tarshish is. Tarshish is probably 
the city that's mentioned the most times that we have no idea where it is. I don't know if that's true, but it's mentioned about 30 times in Scripture. We know it's across the sea. You remember when Jehoshaphat made an alliance with the king of Israel and, and they were going to build ships? Those ships were supposed to go to Tarshish. We don't know where that is, but that's where they were going to go. Yes, it's probably a port city. Some people think Tarshish isn't even a place. It could be. In fact, Herodotus is a uh, historian who mentions a place called Tartusus, which is in southwestern Spain. Some people think that's where Tarshish is. Um, other people believe that it's not even a place, that Tarshish means metalworker, and there's reason to think it might mean that. Um, and that so it might just be, a, you know, it might be, I'm going to go to the metalworkers today. I'm going to go sail to the metalworkers today, which would have been not in the Israeli era, area. That would have been over there. So who knows? Anyway, the idea, the implication in Scripture is it's the opposite direction. I think that's the point we're supposed to get here. He's running as far as he can. This is the end of the earth as far as he's concerned to go to Tarshish. He has to get on a ship, which uh, despite the fact that we have fishermen as Jesus' apostles, there's a long-standing hatred of the sea by Israelites. They are not a seafaring nomadic people. They are a desert-wandering nomadic people. And um, there's reason to believe that a lot of times the sea is used as a metaphor for uh, tribulation throughout Scripture because that's how the Hebrews see water. <laughs> not a good thing. All right. So, here we go. As we read through this, like I say, it's kind of a fun game. Take a note of all the things and people that obey God. Okay? Because we start with this story of Jonah saying no. That's just the very beginning of the story. God gives a command, but Jonah runs off. All right, here we go. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The wind obeys. The storm obeys. Right? The storm doesn't say, well, wait, I don't want to go do that right now. It just obeys. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. All of the sailors are calling on their God. Jonah's not. He's like, our gods aren't working. Why don't you try yours? Right? Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So a bunch of pagans are casting lots and the lots obey God. Right? <laughs> so they fall on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? I mean, again, he just got on a ship. Now, he did tell him, oddly enough, that he's running from his God. We'll see that later. That's a weird thing to tell people when you get on your ship. But apparently he did. <laughs> but he didn't tell them who he was or who his God was or whatever. And they're probably like, you're paying whatever. You know, I've never seen anybody on my ship actually stopped by their God. So feel free to get on the ship. He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. They're like, oh, well, absolutely you're at fault. <laughs> because the God you're running from made all this. Right? Uh, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, obeying God. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? This is interesting. They're like, we don't know your God. You do. What should we do to get your God to be nice to us? And here's where you do recognize Jonah is in many ways a really good guy. He is here the epitome 
of faithlessness, of disobedience. And yet, when he is asked at this moment, what should we do to you? Think of all the possible answers he could give, including nothing. But this is what he says. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. See, I think this shows that Jonah's not without compassion. He knows that the sailors are going to die because of what he did. And he is actually willing to be thrown into the sea. He's telling them the truth. It's me God wants. <laughs> you throw me into the sea and you'll be fine. He didn't have to tell them that, but he does. But here's the other weird thing about this. He would rather be thrown in the sea than simply say, okay, God, I'll go to Nineveh. Right? I mean, that's pretty peculiar too. He literally would rather die than obey God at this moment. So we go on. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. The men also are not like heartless people. They're like, okay, let's just get him back to land. We'll put him back on the land, and then he can deal with his God, but we don't need to throw him in the sea. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Okay, the sea's obeying God. God's like, don't you let them get back to land. (laughs) She's like, okay. Then they cried out to the Lord, and it is the Lord. It is Yahweh here. Now they're praying themselves to Jonah's God. They know He told them, it's my God. They're like, okay, that's who we should be talking to. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. They don't want to throw him into the sea because whatever their religion is, whatever their moral compass is, that's a bad thing to do, as it would be for us. <laughs> so they're like, okay, catch 22. You're his God. Are you going to protect him if we throw him into the sea by killing us anyway? Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Here it is, if Jonah's writing the story, or whoever it is, the first declaration of God's sovereignty comes from whom? Pagans. Bunch of pagans. (laughs) Jonah's still running. He's still fighting. And they're saying, you clearly do what you want to do. We tried to take him back to shore. You said no. That's what they read. That's what they see. Well, it's interesting, too, because like, he has no problem telling them about his God. Right. And he has no problem telling them even that they need to throw him into the sea. <laughs> right. Right. He's not opposed to telling about his God. <laughs> we'll find out later why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew <coughs> So right here, even the pagans obey God. They're like, well, the prophet of God told us to throw the prophet of God into the sea. <laughs> so I guess that's... That's what we do. I also like this point about them. What they have just done is exactly what God wants Jonah to do and Jonah's not doing. And I don't just mean obey God, but I mean recognize the futility of what they're doing, change their mind, and obey God. Because first they try to roll them back to the land. But as it doesn't work, they're like, okay, this isn't working. I guess we just need to do what we were told to do in the first place. That's all Jonah has to do. Instead of being thrown into the sea, if he simply said, okay, God... I'll go to Nineveh, I bet they would have been able to get back to land, right? <laughs> well, that is the point. And Jonah knows this. See, Jonah, see, Jonah knows a lot about God, we learned. He actually knows a lot about God and believes it. He knew this would happen if they threw him in the sea. And I think he knows. If he just says, okay, I give up, he knows it'll be over. But something about preaching to Nineveh is just beyond him. See, I was thinking about that when you were reading it, too, is that 
him saying, just go, go ahead and throw me in the sea. I don't think he was thinking at that time, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. He, he knows God. So he, he, he knew he wasn't going to die. I don't know. I don't know if he didn't. Let's keep reading and see. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Okay, here's the other thing I love. God wants to send Jonah to Nineveh. We find out later he wants to send Jonah to Nineveh to give Ninevites a chance to repent. Turns out this is why Jonah doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wants them to be judged, okay? With good reason. They're bad people, right? I mean, we do this all the time. We call it justice. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I want you to see how hard this is for Jonah. (laughs) But it also tells us, and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but this is another thing Jonah knows about God. He's going to say this later to God. The reason I didn't want to preach judgment to the Ninevites is because I knew you wouldn't judge them. I knew that when they repented, you'd forgive them. And I'd rather they not know of your judgment so they would die in your judgment (laughs) because you're a God who keeps forgiving. And it's not right, is Jonah's estimation at this moment. It's not right to do that. Okay, but knowing all this about God, notice that God wants to use Jonah prophet of God, to bring pagans to repentance. And Jonah runs to a ship. And what happens on that ship to the pagans on that ship? God uses Jonah to bring pagans to repentance. God's doing what he's going to do anyway. Here Jonah is trying to run from God, and God's like, I'm doing it anyway. It's still happening. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. First, not lovely. Yeah, and the fish <laughs> obeys God, right? I don't, you, you, you read anything you want. People will say, there's, first of all, it's not a fish. It's probably some big mammal, like some big whale type of thing. This is not impossible, by the way, for some of the big, bigger animals. It's actually not even impossible to live inside this kind of thing. But what most people will tell you is, there's not a mammal or fish in the world that wants to swallow a human alive like that. <laughs> okay, but this one did. Because God told him to, right? Other than the one that swallowed Pinocchio. By the way, Pinocchio is just Jonah rewritten. You do recognize that, don't you? Okay. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. But listen to this prayer. This is what you have to understand about the fish. We read this story. He gets thrown into the sea. A fish swallows him. That sounds like a terrible place to be. We think this is the trial. What we miss is I think Jonah thought he was going to die. The fish is his salvation, and he recognizes it. Because listen to the prayer from inside the fish. It's not a prayer of asking for help. It's a prayer of praise for the help God has already given him. Listen. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. And the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. What happened is he sank to the bottom and the seaweed wrapped around his head and he thought he was going to die. 
And he thought, oh my gosh, I'll never see the temple of the Lord again. And he cried out to God and he said, I will see the temple of the Lord again if you'll save me. And God saved him by having a big fish swallow him. The fish is not the tribulation. The fish is the salvation. And he sees it. Now, this again reminds us that as ornery as Jonah is in this story, and in some ways he gets more ornery as we go, so hang in there. But, but as ornery as he is in the story, we have to take a moment to recognize, again, the wisdom of a man who can be inside a fish and still see God's salvation in it. <laughs> because it would be much easier to see salvation and have this prayer when he's back on the dry land. But he has this prayer from inside the fish. He's like, well, I'm, I'm still alive. And I have food, such as it is. And I have air, such as it is. And it's a terrible place to be, but I'm alive. God saved me. Because I got swallowed by a fish, guys. And this is the other thing. You know, we read these stories and we think, well, they just probably thought it was normal. Of course they didn't think it was normal, right? Every miracle that happens in Scripture, they're like, that's crazy. That doesn't happen. When someone reads the Bible and says, that doesn't happen, that's what they're saying. Jonah's like, this doesn't happen. You know, this is just, this is crazy. What a story is this? But inside the fish, he praises God. He recognizes what? God's mercy. He recognizes God's mercy and sovereignty. He says, you saved me. You're the, notice who he says threw him in the water. God did. He doesn't blame the pagans. You threw me in the water. And you saved me in the fish. And so... He's, he's lifted out of his sort of anger with God enough to at least recognize the salvation he's received. He praises God for it. And as he does that, the Lord commanded the fish. And I love how it even makes it clear here that God is commanding these things, right? is isn't just random. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Another thing fish don't do, right? Once it's got something in its gullet, it doesn't usually vomit it up onto the dry land, right? This is, this, I would... I, if, I would love to be a passerby, right? Or, or just see the passerby who's standing on the beach when this happens. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. what is going on? This big sea monster just vomited up this man and he just stood up and brushed himself off. That's seaweed off his head. <laughs> it's kind of like this is act one. You know, in a lot of ways, this story is written in two acts. The first act is that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and he runs, and he doesn't escape. And he learns about the sovereignty and the mercy of God. Things he actually already knew. And you can tell he already knew it, because that's part of the whole story. Act 2 starts with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. <laughs> it's not done yet. <laughs> so here we are. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, this is interesting. The first time he said this to Jonah, he actually acknowledged things that Jonah wanted acknowledged. He said, I see that their wickedness is great, and I want you to preach against it. This time, in fact, the message is even softer. If Jonah's having problem with the idea that God might relent and be merciful, God is giving him no promise that that won't happen. Because this time, he hasn't even mentioned their wickedness. And he doesn't even say preach against it. He says, go and I'll give you the message when you get there. Who knows what it's going to be now. But at this point, Jonah realizes it's futile to run. He's going to end up back here. God can do this thing over and over and over if he needs to, right? All right. So now Jonah obeys. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord 
and went to Nineveh. And what we see here is that Jonah is obeying, but it's not really in his heart. He's, he's doing the things he's supposed to do, but he still does not like what God is asking him to do. And it's not because he doesn't want to go preach against Nineveh. In fact, I think that's the part of the job he likes. In fact, I think he enjoys it so much that it makes him especially convincing. I think he is the prophet for the job. Because when he goes to the Ninevites and says, you are all doomed to hell because you're so wicked, God's going to destroy you in a second, they're like, that man has conviction. (laughs) That man believes what he's saying. (laughs) Right? Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's given them details. He's given them deadlines. And this is the message God gave him. I think at this point, because God said, I'll give you the message when you get there, it's safe to assume this is the message. We don't see any indication Jonah's like not doing what he said now. And now maybe Jonah's thinking, yeah, okay, God's sovereign. That's okay. Maybe maybe it'll work out. Maybe they will get destroyed. And there's lots of reasons that it makes sense to Jonah for Nineveh to be destroyed. Number one, they worship false gods. That in and of itself has always been the way God has done things. You worship false gods, we wipe you out. Number two, they are a consistent and persistent threat to Israel. They were not that long ago requiring tributes from the kings. Why wouldn't it be good for them to be judged and everyone to see that that Israel is God's people again? And that's number three. They're not Israelites. They don't deserve the mercy and the grace. They don't deserve a second chance. They don't deserve more because they don't have a covenant with God. We have a covenant with God. They don't even worship the true God. Notice something a little sneaky in his prayer when he was inside the fish. He says this, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love from them, turn away from God's love for them, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. I think this is genuine, but I think it also shows a little bit of the problem that God's trying to correct in Israel right now. And that's that Jonah is crediting himself a little bit with deserving God's love. Why? Because he's not clinging to worthless items. So I get God's love. But they've turned away from it. Nineveh's turned away from it. And indeed they have. And indeed God says they will be judged for it. But Jonah has this fear that they might repent. (laughs) And he has this fear that if they repent, God might accept that. And that means this wicked city gets away with it. And this wicked city continues to be a challenge to Israel. See, it's one thing for a king of Israel to make a mistake and repent and get mercy. Because he's part of God's people. But for the king of Nineveh to repent and get God's mercy after everything he's done, and possibly with Jonah even knowing everything he's going to do? Jonah's a prophet. What's the odds he might even know what the Assyrians are going to do in the future? It's possible. It's possible. This is also way, way before anything is spoken about the difference between the Gentiles and the Jews. I mean, you know, until Jesus comes, they, they don't know that we're all one great big happy family. 
they are seriously God's chosen people, and those guys aren't. Yes, except I think what Jonah, if he's the one writing this, if he's not, the author of Jonah, what he was trying to do is remind Israel that, in fact, that is not the way God ever set it up. He never set it up that Israel's people would be chosen so that the rest of the world would go to hell. They were supposed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be a blessing to all nations. And you know when they remembered that most recently? When they were in power. When they were a powerful nation, then nations that were evil, they had no trouble receiving tributes from those nations. (laughs) They had no trouble giving trading with those nations. They had no trouble blessing them. And they thought to themselves, here we are, God's people blessing the entire world. But did those wicked nations deserve it any more then? Were those nations all falling at the feet of, of, uh, of Yahweh? No. <laughs> it's easier to remember when you're not threatened <laughs> to be kind to your enemies. When your enemies can't hurt you, it's easier to love them and pray for them. But when you're the little guy and they're the oppressor, well, now it looks different. That's what's happening here. Well, in some ways, too, maybe, like, to him, it would seem like God isn't... Do you think he thought that, like, at the beginning? Or just that was a realization he came to? Because I could see how maybe he would think that if God, just even God asking him to do this, then who is this God? Maybe this isn't the God I worship. Except he knows it from the beginning. So, see, this is the irony. He knows this is the, who God is. He doesn't want God to do it in this case, but he knows it's who God is. He's going to tell us that later. He's going to say to God, this is why I didn't want to preach them, because this is who you are. <laughs> let's, let's keep reading. We'll see. So, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. I just love that. Again, I just think Jonah has such conviction and and. He shows the wrath of God in his own demeanor that I think they're just like, whoa, if his God is, you know, half as angry as he is, we're in trouble. And they believe God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. I love this too. There's no way to read this except as a full bore, genuine, honest repentance to the degree that they can offer it. Because there's, there's, this is not half-hearted. This is not small. Let's keep reading. A fast was proclaimed in all of them. And we were just told this is a city that took three days to travel through. And it says all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered him with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. This is textbook repentance. Not only is he like pray to God, but he's like stop doing what you're doing. And it's not even a promise, is it? He's not even like we're going to do this and God will definitely then have to forgive us. No, he's like, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. Or maybe we'll die. But this is what we do. I mean, this is, this is pretty, pretty classic repentance. By the way, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. King of Nineveh isn't a term that exists. There is no king of Nineveh. 
So uh, there's a couple of things. One is some people think that the phrase king of Nineveh is a way of showing, again, who's really in charge, that God's in charge, and it almost diminishes it. But, but that's because some people think this king of Nineveh is Shalmaneser III, that this is actually the, the emperor of Assyria. Now, if it is, it might explain why Shalmaneser III stopped attacking Israel. This is a weird story, if that's the case. But it's really hard to figure out who the king of Nineveh is otherwise. So I don't know if that's who it is, but it's interesting. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It is. Okay, so... Wouldn't it make sense that the emperor... They don't have kings. There's no kings in the cities of Assyria. There's an emperor of Assyria, and there's all these, these colonies which have governors and things like that. There's no king. It's kind of a weird phrase. Yes, and because it's the capital, the argument is this palace is where... Just like, where, where does the king of Israel live? Samaria. Where does the king of Judah live? Jerusalem. Right? And calling him king of Nineveh may be a way to diminish him as king of Assyria, is I think the point that some people make. We don't know. It's just an interesting side note. Anyway. Uh, one of the problems that people have with this story, by the way, if you get past the big fish. I mean, a lot of people are just like, well, this couldn't happen because big fish don't swallow people. And I'm like, well, you know, this is about miracles of God, so whatever. But but the other problem sometimes people have is there's no story of the great repentance of Nineveh. I mean, there's no history aside from what happens here. Um, but there is this general weakening of Assyria at the same time, which is interesting. <laughs> Makes you wonder a little bit. But do we run into stories after this about where Nineveh recants and says, we're not going to... Well, so when Tilgath Pilser becomes king of Assyria, we don't hear about Nineveh specifically. But if it's still the capital of Assyria, then yes, it's involved in, in the horrors to come. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so they say maybe God will relent. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God is showing his sovereignty. God is showing his mercy. He's showing his sovereignty, showing his grace. He's showing his authority and he's showing his love. But to Jonah, listen to this phrase. This seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And listen to how he says it. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? See, we weren't told this, but he's already had this argument with God. When he ran, he said to God, God, are you crazy? I know what's going to happen. They're going to repent and you're going to forgive them. And God must have said to him, that could happen. <laughs> right? Because he couldn't promise it wouldn't. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now here's the irony. He's mad at God for being that. Isn't this the exact same prayer he just made from inside the fish and he was really glad that God was all that? <laughs> a friend of mine once said, and I think he made an accurate point, he said the problem with us as a species, as human beings, is that we tend to want God-sized mercy for ourselves and God-sized justice for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where Jonah is. That's where Jonah is. He's like, I know you're, I mean, these words are so funny in anger, right? These are like praises. These are like the things David praised him for. And here he's, you're just such a God of love and compassion and you're just so quick to relent on disaster and... It's like, I knew you were that God. Oh! <laughs> but of course he wants them to be that way for him. Right. The, the underlying problem here 
it isn't just even a personal thing. You know, that, that statement my friend made is about sort of our own, our own arrogance in ourselves. But for, for Jonah, it goes beyond that. It's a national, cultural issue. And I think the reason that Jonah, the reason I think Jonah's writing this story and he's telling this prophecy the way he is, is because if he went to your typical Israelite and said to them, you are thinking wrongly about all the other nations of the world and you need to stop seeing them as your enemies, they would just look at him and say, what do you know? They are our enemies. But so Jonah instead goes to them and says, let me tell you a story. I feel the exact same way you do. (laughs) But let me tell you a story about what God did as I felt that way. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is why I say, perhaps, in the boat, he actually meant it. If this is what I have to live with, a God who is going to forgive Nineveh, I'd rather die than be part of that. Because now that it's happened, that's what he's saying. Now, maybe Jonah's just dramatic, but we don't know that. Maybe he actually is facing such a crisis of his role as a prophet of God that he can't see any way forward. He's like, if this is what my life is to be, to somehow I'm supposed to accept that the Ninevites can be forgiven, if that's the way the world is, I don't want to be part of it. It's that existential a moment for him. It's that large. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I love the way that God deals with Jonah largely through questions in this, by the way, because God has a right to be angry. Right? I mean, God could just say, Jonah, shut up. You're dumb. You remember how I saved you in the fish? Why should I save you and not them? Are you really better than them? But he just says, do you have a right to be angry? Because the answer obviously is no. God does what God does. God does what God does. Yes. I think that's right. And the Israelites struggle with this throughout, and, they, and we struggle with it. And, and you can even look. Again, it, it's easy. It's easy for me, at least, to put myself in Jonah's shoes. Okay? It's easy for me to see myself having this argument with God. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is, you can even see logically, right? Let's say that God directly said to him. When he says, do you have any right to be angry? It starts a whole bunch of thoughts, right? <laughs> but let's say that Jonah said to him, well, kind of yes, and here's why. Because, you know what? I've never been as brutal as they have. I've never been as wicked as they have. I've never done what they've done. And you didn't sign a covenant with them. So you can kind of logically argue it. But before you even get into the mercy question, which is what all those hinge on, you should be more merciful to me because I've never done what they did. But before you can go to that, God is asking a different question. Do you even have a right to tell me that I should be nice to you because of any of those things? I'm God. I do what I do. If I want to choose the Ninevites to be my people and cast you all aside, I can do that. Now, he's not threatening to do that. But he thinks he wants to be clear to Jonah. There is nothing special about you 
that didn't come from me. Right? And it's an important message for Jonah to get right now. Paul goes into speaking in the New Testament. He goes into a very long argument. And it's very long because Paul is very nuanced and sophisticated in his argument. But he goes into a very long argument in which he's trying to straddle, appropriately so, two thoughts. One in which he's trying to help the Jews understand that they, they are special. Because they brought the law of God to the world. And they brought the Savior into the world, right? Through their lineage. In one sense, he's trying to help them understand you do have a special place in this. And at the same time, he's trying to help them understand you don't have that special place because you're special. (laughs) (laughs) You are special because God gave you that place. And God gave you that place because he did. Period. You know, I think about the, the, the and, and again, I, I, as you all have noted, noticed, I don't know if you've noted it, but as you all have probably noticed, I tend to avoid political discussions at this time for lots of reasons. I actually avoid political discussions from the pulpit in my own church and decided that about six years ago to do that. It was a, it was a deliberate decision. But, but I will say this, and I hope this is far enough in the past to not be super political here today. When you look at the founding of America, that's what I mean by far in the past. <laughs> when you're looking at the found, when you're looking, when you look at the founding of America, there's no reason it should have worked. That's the bottom line. There's no reason it should have worked. We ended up with probably ten of at least the top hundred smartest people in the world at the time. In one place. Uh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not joking about that. If you look at who those people were, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Tom Jefferson, Tom Jefferson, see there I go, Thomas <laughs> Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, who may have been the, the smartest of the bunch and also kind of dumb. But if you, if you looked at, because he died in a duel, how dumb is that? But anyway, <laughs> if you start adding Madison, if you start looking at who the people were, they literally were smarter than, than most of the rest of the world just in terms of sheer intellect, not even in terms of education necessarily, just in terms of intellect. To be able to do the things George Washington did is crazy. To be able to create the things that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and Madison created together is ridiculous. And then on top of that, to survive the war with England? There's no way. (laughs) To survive the Civil War? We should have been gone at that point. Again, at that moment, we had a man, Abraham Lincoln, who was unlike anybody else in the world. I mean, just crazy. Crazy smart. My point is, I think it is fair to look at America and in one sense say, man, we are here by a divine act of God's sovereignty. But it would be a mistake to look at that and say, that proves that we are better people than the rest of the world. That would be a mistake. I think to, to not, I think you can say both. And I think it's okay to say both. I don't, I don't personally see a problem with saying we're here by a divine act of God. But it would be wrong if the conclusion from that is because we are inherently better people. The fact that those people are smarter isn't why we ended up where we are. Didn't attract God's attention. They weren't smarter than God. I'm amazed they all ended up in the same place. <laughs> That's my point. And I think God did that. 
And this is kind of where it is for the Israelites. They do have this special connection that God has chosen them. But to decide that because God has chosen them for a special purpose, that makes them people that are better than those around them is a struggle that they have had their entire history and understandably so, right? Because is, that is a hard thing to disconnect. Well, we but that's did. part of the story of Jonah. By the way, after Jonah, we come to another prophet when we finish this story, next time we get together, we come to another prophet named Amos. Amos is an angry prophet. You think Jonah's angry at God. Amos is angry at Israel. Amos is an angry prophet. And he lays into Israel. He's angry at Israel. And he lays into Israel like nobody's business. And he mocks them. And he scorns them. And he says things about the Exodus that you're going to go, what? He's going to say to them at one point, you think the Exodus makes you special? Forget it. <laughs> Which is so contrary in one sense to what they've been told all this time, but it's not really contrary. It's a correction. And Amos gives the direct, verbal, full-front assault that Jonah is sort of softly preparing them for. <laughs> that God is not pleased that we've forgotten we're to be a blessing to other nations. But let's, let's keep going so that we can kind of see that, that come through here. I think this is Jonah's prophecy. This is the message of Jonah. So Jonah had gone out. So he has, again, I love how in here, in this story, God asks questions, Jonah never answers them. Yes, Meredith. Do you think he's like questioning God's like goodness? He thinks it's wrong what God did, but notice ironically he thinks it's wrong what God did, but he knew God did it because God is good. It depends what you mean by good. He is angry that God is so good. So he's, but if, you, if by, well, those are the words he used, compassionate and good. He sees that it's wrong. So that's why I say it depends what you mean by good. I think he's questioning God's justice. Yeah. And is going to attack them. Sure. I mean, these are the people that are more so contributing to it, and he's probably seen friends die in war with Nineveh sure. and in Assyria. Sure. So, I mean, I'm wondering how much of like that is, you know, because his brother was in the army, you know, in the middle of the army and literally died, you know, or friends or whatever. But I think Jonah wants to ask. I think Jonah, again, this all segues into that question God just asked. Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't answer it. The next statement, he goes away. He, he walks away, right? It's like that moment when you're, you're arguing with someone and they just walk away. And I think, again, he's leaving that, whoever the author is, he's leaving that for the Israelites and for us to wrestle with. Is it right? Is he really angry because God is not good or God is not just? Is that really what's happening here? Because I think Jonah might say that's not really what he was angry about. It's what he thought he was angry about. But let's, let's keep going. Right. Yeah. It just seems good. wrong and to that's him. Why right. Even if, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? That's good. Sort of 
filter. You're worried about what's right. Is it right for you to be angry? That's good. I like that. So it says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. I think he's still holding out hope, right? He's like, maybe the repentance is false or maybe God, maybe I got through to God. I mean, I don't know. You know, whatever it is, he's like, okay, I'm going to watch because if it is going to be destroyed, I'm going to watch. But again, this tells you where he is. He is going to revel in the destruction of these people, okay, to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So God asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah goes away. Jonah goes and watches over the city. Is he doing something God is happy about right now? No. No. So God makes a plant, makes it comfortable for him, gives him shade, and Jonah's happy about that. I think you could ask the same question. Is it right for him to be happy about that? I mean, I just think we're supposed to start thinking through all this. What, why is he happy about that? Because he was uncomfortable before, and now he's comfortable. Did he plant the plant? Did he water the plant? Did he pick a spot that had shade already? Did he do anything? Did he pray for a plant? Did he do anything to earn this plant? Does he deserve this plant? No. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. Now, maybe he is a little dramatic. And said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So, but here's what's happened. God provided the plant. Jonah's happy about it. God provides the worm. Jonah's not happy about it. Did Jonah do anything to, to deserve either? No. No. Not really. Not really. And yet, he acts like one is right and one isn't right based only upon what? Upon how it made him feel. Yeah. About how comfortable it made him. I think God is trying to show him and us how shallow our ethical systems really are, right? I mean, Jonah's thinking he's got this strong ethical argument against God, and God's like, let me challenge that. Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer, so then God gives him a shade, and Jonah's like, that is right. Shade, good. Then he brings a worm, and Jonah's like, that is bad. (laughs) And God's like, they're both just things I created that you had nothing to do with. One happened to make you comfortable. One happened to make you wish you were dead. But they have nothing to do with you. And yet... He gave him the worm to eat. (laughs) Jonah said, no, I I don't want to eat. Who knows? Who knows? But the point is... Even if you see him as a rigid ethicist, right? He's got a, a, a clear idea in his mind of what's right and wrong. 
that's still what he's applying on the boat, right? He gets on the boat, and they're like, whose fault is it? And he's like, well, the ethical thing is to acknowledge this is my fault. He abides by his own ethical system. It's just shallow, and he doesn't know it's shallow. He doesn't recognize how shallow it is. So he's learning a lesson. We're all still trying to learn the same lesson. It's like we all think that there's only one person going to go to hell. As long as I'm better than that one person, I'm okay. (laughs) That's what he's doing. I'm better than them, and God's trying to prove, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep going. Um, He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, he asked the question again, but he phrases it now about this object lesson he's given Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Okay, we see how shallow it's beginning to sound, don't we? I think even the drama of it is kind of there to let us see. Okay, come on, Jonah. You were talking about Nineveh before. We kind of were with you there. But now you're talking about a plant? And you're mad that God destroyed the plant? And why? Why was it wrong for him to destroy the plant? Because it made you uncomfortable, period. There is no moral dilemma here. You see that, right? The only moral dilemma is he thinks he has a right to be angry because he liked it, and now it's gone. You're hanging out there so you can see like Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and God is about to make that point. God is about to draw very clearly together why this makes no sense. Jonah has suddenly decided that it was morally wrong for God to destroy a plant when he had previously decided it would be morally right for God to destroy the entire city of Nineveh. And the only reason is because Jonah liked the plant. (laughs) You see how small that is? But but the lesson is, it's all kind of that small. (laughs) Most of our decisions and ethical approaches end up being that small. But, but let's, let's keep reading because God is going to bring that up. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It doesn't even have any permanence. No one will even know this plant was around except you. Right? Ever. <laughs> and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Specifically, 120,000 infants. That's people who don't know their right hand from their left. And animals. He's like, let's even lay aside your moral questions about the evil that goes on there. Did you even give consideration to the animals, who certainly are worth as much as this plant, and more than that, 120,000. Not knowing right from left means literally innocent. And, and most people think what he's saying here is infants. Which is possible. If it's a big city, it takes three days to go through, and there's no birth control in the world. <laughs> this is how it happens. <laughs> is that possible? If not, he's just saying that even the people who are doing wrong, doing evil, they don't have a law like you do. They don't know what's right and wrong. They don't have your strong ethical standards, Jonah. <laughs> right? So how can you judge them by that? Well, also they haven't gotten the privilege of hearing about God and who he is and coming to know him. Yeah. And the story ends there. Jonah's sitting on the mountaintop. God poses this question. Scene. And we're all going, what happened? 
happened? <laughs> what, what happened? We don't know. It's interesting, Second Kings later, we're going to have one little moment where Jonah is going to actually prophesy something to Jeroboam II. And if nothing else, it lets us know that Jonah is alive. And he finally got up and walked away from the Yes. <laughs> it lets us know that he's not only alive, but God is still using him. He's still a prophet. So it leads to the idea of some sort of repentance, at least. Some sort of reconciliation with God. But if you believe, and again, tradition is that the early, that, that they, they, the rabbis believed that Jonah wrote this book. And if you believe that Jonah wrote this book, then it does add this element to it where, and I love this, where Jonah, a man with a strong ethical standard, closes his book without telling you what the strong ethical answer should be. <laughs> because the only answer that matters is that God is God, and he's sovereign, and he is a God of compassion and love. And who are we to second guess his decisions about that? Who are we to say, I deserve God-sized grace, but you deserve God-sized justice? You know, the, the fact that the lesson to be learned out of this, it would be hard to substantiate any other kind of an ending to that book yeah. than what happened. Yeah, it is almost like no matter what happens after that, yeah. weakens the question because we're supposed to learn from the question. Yeah. We're supposed to take the question and wrestle with it ourselves. We're supposed to say, how is it that I can so quickly judge the way God deals with this or that or the other and think I know it's best? And yet, when it comes down to it, when I judge right and wrong, if we're honest, a good percentage of the time, it's just based upon what works for me. Yeah. Feelings. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And a sense of what works for me. We can make a strong moral construct. I, this is one of the reasons, you know, I... I, I um, Some of the best Christian philosophers have very clearly made the point that Christianity is not an ethical system. Mm. It's not about coming up with a, a good philosophy of how you should live your life. Because once you make it that, what you forget is that God is sovereign and that God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. Wouldn't you say, though, that we probably focus on that, though, in our Christianity. We do an awful lot. Yeah. We do an awful lot. I think that's an issue. I think that's an issue. I think when we... I will say this. As a pastor of 30 years... I, I say this carefully. How many Sunday school teachers are in the room? It's okay. I love Sunday school teachers. I just wanted to say that before I say what I'm about to say. <laughs> most Sunday school curriculum takes Old Testament stories and reduces them to ethical, moral lessons. And when they do that, you know what we lose? The we lose the sovereignty of God. We lose the mercy of God. We lose the gospel. We lose what the story is really about. Many, many, many sermons reduce great stories great revelations of God to quick moral lessons. And when we do that, we lose the gospel. We lose a sovereign and unpredictable God who, has, who is compassionate and loving and gracious and is so in ways that don't make sense to us sometimes. 
And other times, he does things that seem less compassionate. It doesn't make sense to us either. Like, why would you destroy my plant, God? If you cared about me. But that's the nature of most of the questions we ask. When you really get down to it, I think what Jonah is sharing with us is that I thought I was arguing great philosophical questions with God. And then I realized I was really just arguing about who took my plant. You know, we would struggle hardly <laughs> even more so than we do now as Christians if we didn't have closure, though. Huh? Sure. Sure. I mean, this, this, these questions also that Jonah encounters are part of the way God prepares the Israelites for the gospel, too. Because these questions of what does it mean that we're supposed to bless all the nations of the earth? And what does it mean that God is actually gracious to people who've been wicked? You know, what, how, what does all that mean? These, these prepare them for the lessons of the gospel. Paul says everything that we see in the law, he says the law is good. The law is not bad. The law is not something we should scorn or dismiss. The law is true and will be true forever, says Paul. But he says the law is a tutor. It was supposed to prepare us to receive the gospel. Jonah is probably, for all the flack we want to give him, he's probably ahead of his time, <laughs> right? He's learning the limitations of the law and beginning to grasp the wildness of God and all his greatness and all his goodness and all his love and all his compassion and all his glory and all his sovereignty. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Except I think the point he's making to Jonah is you didn't worry about that with the Ninevites for a second. You didn't say, why did he give them all life and now he's going to take it away? You said, I should take it away. So I think that's the point God's making is it's small in comparison. Yeah. That, that you, and I think the point is you, only, you tend to only worry. And again, this is true. This, is not, this in itself is not a reproof, but it's important we recognize it. We tend to worry only about the things that affect us. I'm not saying that, that God despises us for that. He doesn't despise us anyway. But I'm not even saying he scorns us for that. But we need to recognize that. And that when we create our moral systems, more often than not, they're not as large as we think they are. It doesn't mean they're irrelevant. Why God created the plant and destroyed it is relevant. Not only that, but Jonah was only... God only created the discomfort in the place Jonah insisted on being that Truth. God wanted him to leave. Truth. God wasn't like following me around, <laughs> removing all of the options for comfort. He was like, I don't even want you to be here. I'm not going to make true. it easy for you That's to true. continue trying to judge That's the Ninevites. Um, I mean, there is that too. He, he, Jonah could just move to a shadier spot, right? He could, go, <laughs> I mean, he could go down into Nineveh. Like, at this point, God has proven like they've repented. Yeah. He could, you'd be more yeah. comfortable I think. That. I could kind of see him, and this isn't against that, I guess, but him kind of being like, I think the I think the difference is that Jonah doesn't question that. 
Jonah already believes that God cares about him and the Israelites. What is astounding to him is that God would care about the Ninevites the same way. That's why it's a different lesson for Jonah. Because I don't think he's wrestling with that. He's not wrestling with whether God cares about him. He knows God cares about him. He sang that praise from inside the fish. He gets it. And he gets that God cares for Israel. His problem is, why do you care for them the same way? They don't deserve it. We deserve it. And God's point is, why do you think just because it happens to you, it's right? And if it happens to them, it's not right. And I think the plant is his way of showing when it's connected to you, it's not the bigness of it that is attracting the argument. It's you. There's, there may be a plant 15 feet from him that God does the same thing, and Jonah doesn't get mad about that. And that's God's point. I'm making plants grow and die every moment, everywhere. And you only care about this one. And you don't even care about the 120,000 innocents in Nineveh. Or all of the animals. You're sitting up here delighting to watch them burn. Shame on you, in a sense. Except God isn't saying that because God is very gentle with Jonah. He's just asking questions. Think about that. Jeff. So, interesting. Big picture. Either God judges them and the capital of Assyria is gone and they probably end up in a civil war and don't have time to worry about Israel, or they repent and they stop attacking Israel. So in some ways it doesn't even matter what happens. Either way, 40 days and they don't have a problem anymore. Sure. But he doesn't just want them to stop attacking Israel. He yeah. wants bad things to happen. He wants bad things to happen to them. That's clear. I think throughout the Old Testament, what God is beginning to remind the Israelites, and he begins to do it aggressively now, partly because I think when David was king, he had a way of reminding people of this every now and then anyway, that they were there to bless other nations. David actually seemed to grasp that fairly well. And he even seemed to grasp a certain humility that said, it's, we're not here because we're better. We're just here because God chose us to be here. And David seemed to get that on some level. So I think when David was there, that reminder was there. Since that, as they've become divided, as they've begun to fight with each other, as the judgments are beginning to come, I think God wants to be clear to them. And he starts sending his prophets in different ways to make this clear, the two-fold points that God is making. I'm sovereign. I'll do what I want, first of all. You don't have me in a box. You don't control me. The covenant I have with you, I made of my choosing. And I'll honor it because I want to. <laughs> Not because you have to make me. And number two, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And there is nothing about you that makes you deserve my mercy more than the most wicked person that you can envision anywhere else. You know, that point you just made about David, I think, if I can recall, um, I, I, matter of fact, I don't recall any time that he did do that, any kind of comparison why them and not me, or why me and not them. I don't think he made those comparisons. I think you're right about that. He, uh, he accepted the blessings or the curses. I don't think I ever recall a story where he said, why did you do that to him and not me? Or why did he deserve the same thing yeah. that you're giving me? Yeah. And I just think, I think it seems to me like Jonah is very convinced from the beginning of the story. It even leads to his greatest conflict. He's convinced that God is sovereign, and he's convinced that God is a God of love and compassion. And he believes that God will be that way with him, but he believes that's right. But he believes for him to be that way with Nineveh is wrong. 
I think that's the dilemma. That's the argument that he's having with God. And God is saying, says who? Why do you get to make that determination? And Jonah is, I think, at the end, realizing he doesn't. Do you think he actually does grasp it? Well, I think he does because I think he wrote it. But if he didn't write it, right, okay, then maybe sure. he doesn't, and he only has one prophecy to Jeroboam because he's <laughs> kind of not a good prophet. I don't know. <laughs> That's a possibility. Anyway, I do think there are lessons for, him, for us. Yeah. I think even as, I will just say, even as American Christians who, experience, who have experienced a lot of blessing and a lot of, um, even the American church has experienced a lot of blessing and, and respect and, and uh, influence over the years. And now we find ourselves sort of like Israel with less of that. And I think some of these questions are good for us as well. But like Jonah, rather than tell you where I think they relate, I will simply say, do they? See. Okay, go with God. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.